please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. And as we begin, uh, dear folks this morning, I want to remind us that uh, we live in a time in which extreme language is used for almost anything. Superlatives are abused constantly, and it seems like everything is profound in this world. That movie was awesome. That play on the field was epic. That meal was mind-blowing. That Super Bowl several years ago was unbelievable, when you probably can't even remember several years ago what the Super Bowl was. But why is it that when these moments are long gone, it really is no big deal anymore? It has no lasting effect. Why is that? Well, because as one New York columnist put it, quote, we live in an age of profound baloney, end quote. Right? Where everything is exaggerated and blown out of proportion. In every commercial that we see, that car is the best. Uh, that vacation will be most memorable. That sporting event will never be forgotten. That concert was unbelievable. We could go on, but I'm gonna stop there. But here's the truth. All these things, though somewhat memorable, are like the New York columnist put it, they are like bees that sting once and then die. And you know, this makes for a challenge really for teachers and, and, and preachers of, of sacred scripture because how can we teach you what is truly profound in an age of profound baloney? Well, this is how. <laughs> this is how you do it. By ever pointing one another to that which is truly indescribable to that which is truly awesome and forever to be remembered. Dear church, this morning this text reveals a truly profound historic moment to be remembered. We're going to remember the Lord Jesus Christ in communion in just a few moments, but it's interesting that the Lord Jesus Christ himself tells us to remember something else that happened just prior to him giving his life for us. Please read the scripture with us, beginning in Mark chapter 14, verse 1. Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. While he was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of nard, pure nard, and she broke the vial and poured it over his head. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them, but you do not always have me. She has done what she could. 
She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. They were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money. And he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. This is God's word. And in light of our text this morning, our theme will be the transforming effect of the gospel is extravagant love and devotion to the Savior. Now, the theme of the gospel of Mark is Jesus as servant. All of the gospel of Mark presents to us, showing us time and time again that Jesus is the servant of servants. But in our story this morning, we see that he is the one being served, and rightly so. And our context briefly is the fact that the majority of Jesus' ministry has been fulfilled by all of his preaching and teaching and miracles and healings to this very point. And in recent teaching, in Mark chapter 13, the prior chapter, he's warned them to be on the alert, to be on guard for spiritual dangers, believing lies of anything that is anti-Christ, and also to be ready and watchful for his return. So, once we make the turn to Mark chapter 14, we see that we've come to the last few days of Jesus' earthly ministry. And this brings us to point one, the plot to destroy Jesus in verses one to two. And this is indeed disturbing news, is it not? And we see the season of it, the season of this plot in which to destroy Jesus. We see, as our text says, Passover and unleavened bread were two days away. So there would have been much excitement, much hype going on here. These are celebrations and remembrances of what God had done for the Israelites, which lasted one week, actually eight days, because Passover was one day and unleavened bread was seven days. So it was really about an eight-day celebration. Again, much excitement in the air. Uh, little Jerusalem, which was the population of about 50,000, would swell at this time each year to 250,000. Unbelievable excitement is going on. Unbelievable preparation is going on and remembering how God delivered the Israelites from the hand of Pharaoh, from the Egyptians. We also see in our beginning of our text this morning, we see the sinners that are involved in this plot to destroy Jesus. We see the chief priests and the scribes. These are the religious leaders of the day who say they know God, and yet they are seeking to kill the author of life, the son of man, the son of God. And we'll also see that Judas was here also. And what were they doing? What does our text say? It says they were seeking how to seize him by stealth. That is with craft deceitfully, how they could literally bait him so that they could murder him. But yet in this whole plot to seek to destroy Jesus, we see the sovereignty of it as well. And we'll see more of this later, but just briefly, 
Matthew 26, verse two, the Lord Jesus says, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the son of man is to be handed over for crucifixion. So even though they say at the end of verse two, ah, let's, let's not get him during the, the festival because that'll cause a riot among the people. And we don't wanna mess that up. We don't wanna stir Rome to be agitated at us. Jesus has always avoided his enemies' plots to kill him time and time again, we see throughout the gospels. But now it was becoming his appointed time and it was appointed by him, not them, to be the lamb who would take away the sin of the world, John 1, 29. So after Mark presents us with this disturbing news of those seeking how to destroy Jesus, he then begins to bring us to this dinner party. You could really call it the second to the last supper. So Mark brings us there in point two, and this is the party to celebrate Jesus in verses three to nine. And at this party, we see that our host is Simon the leper. Simon the leper. And dear church, this, this ought to captivate our attention our text says Simon the leopard, the leper. Can you imagine being known by that or having once been known by that? I was trying to put myself in his shoes and thinking, Christopher Charles Teagle, the psychotic. Christopher Charles Teagle, the HIV. Just try and imagine that sense. Our text says Simon the leper, but indeed he is a leper no more. It would appear that Simon is one of the many lepers whom Jesus had healed in his earthly ministry. Perhaps he was the leper who said in Matthew chapter 8, Lord, if you are willing, you can cleanse me. Or perhaps uh, he was the only one out of the 10 who actually came back to Jesus and thanked him in Luke 17. We don't know precisely but it could be. The fact is, is leprosy. Leprosy, that dreaded bacterial skin-eating, nerve-damaging disease described as death by inches. And according to Leviticus 13 to 14, you would indeed be a what? An outcast of Israel. So this is a man who was indeed once very familiar with physical pain, separation from family and friends, humiliation, and the, the, the religious assumption that his condition was a judgment of God for sins. So notice, Mark keeps his name Simon the leper, but Simon doesn't keep his condition. And so he indeed here in our text is the one throwing this party. We're there we're in his home. He is the one who greets us at the door this morning. <laughs> try to imagine his smile. It, try to imagine his joyful face because of what Jesus had done for him. Let's try. I, I mean, no wonder he threw a party for the Savior. Now, this dinner party is only getting started. 
Because when we go to John chapter 12, we are informed that Lazarus is also present at this party as well. So as you walk through the door of of Simon's house, we would also see Lazarus at the table with them. Now, I don't know about you, but I think some of us here this morning know a few things about Lazarus, right? And I would say that he uh, qualifies as quite a unique guest at this dinner party. What a story he has to tell having recently been raised from the dead. No big deal. (laughs) Like, what was it like to die? Are you sad you're gonna have to die again? You know, just thinking through some questions you might ask Lazarus at this dinner. What was heaven like, Lazarus? Who did you happen to meet there, right? How's Moses doing? How's Daniel? How's Isaiah doing? Can you imagine? Who else did you meet? What was it like with you see the glory of God in heaven, but yet the God incarnate is still on earth? Like, how does that work? And then, of course, there's questions like, Who broke the news to Lazarus that he couldn't stay in heaven the rest of his time, right? Because according to to John chapter 11, ever since Lazarus died, we see that the Savior's been crying, right? That's the first verse we've memorized in John 11, 35, Jesus wept. Jesus has been crying. Mary has been crying. Martha has been crying. And now it's time for Lazarus to head back to earth. What a trip that must have been. What a trip, right? Hearing the words of Jesus, Lazarus, come forth. What was that like? Just a few questions to ask Lazarus, just to ponder. So we have Simon, who is a leper, no more. Lazarus, who is indeed dead, no more. And we also see that Martha is at this party, probably catering this whole event, right? The, the eager servant that she indeed was. And we also see that Jesus' disciples are here as well. And Matthew tells us that in Matthew 26, verse 8, that all of the disciples were there as well. But most importantly, the Savior is present at this party, right? He's the reason for this in-home warm gathering. Now, normally at occasions like these, there would often be religious leaders like the Pharisees. They would be present. And there would be indeed, as you see in each account, tension and strife. But not at this party. No, no Pharisee has been invited to this party. This party is only for those who are grateful to the Savior. They are here to celebrate the Savior, not to criticize him or not to try and find fault with him and not not to try and prove that he is not the Son of God. This party is for those who know who the Lord Jesus Christ is. So in the midst of this joyful, festive occasion, 
John chapter 12 informs us that Mary, the sister of Martha, is the one who performs this unashamed, selfless act for her savior. Strange as it sounds, perhaps, see it again in verse three. There came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard, and she broke the vial and poured it over his head. Some scholars think that this nard was probably an heirloom or an inheritance, something that has been in a family for generations, which was passed on from a mother to her daughter. In that case, then this nard had sentimental value along with its monetary value. Pure nard, pure nard. A yellow, amber colored liquid that has a sweet, woody smell. It is a much prized fragrant oil from the spikenard muskroot plant found in the mountains of India. And our text in verse five informs us that this perfume has a value of over 300 denarii. Judas knew what he was talking about. He knew the value of things. And a denarius was a paycheck for one day of work. So therefore, this is about a one year's wage. But not only this, it's being broken out of and poured out of an alabaster vial. That's a fine variety of white marble processed in Egypt. It was a long necked bottle, a delicate and costly container used for storing costly perfumes. So after having blessed and refreshed the guests with a splash or two of oil, which was the custom of the day, we see then in verse three that she broke the vial and poured it over his head. MacArthur says, quote, she probably broke the neck of the bottle so that she could pour out the elements more quickly, which is an expression of her sincere and total devotion to the Lord. Spurgeon goes on and I believe rightly says, quote, this is the most intense and fervent act of affection in all of sacred scripture. <laughs> and then on top of all of this, John's gospel adds that she took her own hair and wiped his feet with the very same oil that was pouring down in John 12, verse three. Now, do you have the moment in mind? <laughs> I mean, what a moment that is suddenly taking place at this party. Can you see it? Can you smell it? Are you there? Listen, it's so stunning that Jesus makes a memorial out of her act of love and devotion in verse nine. What does he say? Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of her in memory, in memory of her. What a pronouncement, what a promise. But in the middle of this act of honor and devotion, love and worship of the Savior in preparation for his burial, unbeknownst to Mary perhaps, we have party crashers as well at this dinner party. And that takes us to verse four. Our text says, but some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor and they were scolding her. Now, 
Matthew 26 tells us that all the disciples were talking this way. This was the attitude, this was the response, really, among all the disciples. But John chapter 12 tells us Judas Iscariot was the spokesman for them all when he said what he said. The word for scolding her in, in, in the original language is, is in reference, literally, it literally means the flaring of the nostrils in anger. They were angry that this was wasted. It's interesting because Judas says that what she's done is a waste when he is the one who wasted his life. Then in the midst of these complaints of wastefulness of this precious expensive oil that Mary pours out upon the Savior's head, another voice speaks up to her defense in verse six and says, Jesus says, leave her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. In other translations, a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you and whenever you wish you can do good to them, but you do not always have me. So in a sentence, Jesus supports giving to the poor at the proper time. He also proves his kingship and deity by receiving such worship as, as that was done in ancient times, the pouring of the, of the oil over the entire body. And then he also pre-exposes Judas's betrayal, which brings us back around again to the disturbing news in verses 10 and 11. We're back to disturbing news. The plan to betray Jesus in verses 10 and 11. And what's amazing here is that the chief priests and Judas prepared to kill Jesus while the disciples fair, failed to prepare at all. Nothing though takes Jesus by surprise. The sovereignty of this situation is incredible. Their evil betrayal is the kickstart to our everlasting blessing, the lamb being prepared for slaughter. How God alone uses sin sinlessly to accomplish his purposes. The opportune time which Judas and the religious leaders sought to betray and kill Jesus by stealth was set in stone already before the foundation of the world. Incredible, isn't it? Acts chapter 2, 23. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of lawless men and put him to death. Acts 4, 28 confirms that as well. And we know Genesis 50, 20, what they meant for evil, God meant for good. But at, at the very same time, right? We know the sovereignty of God over this entire situation and the disturbing news that comes at the end of this dinner party. We know this, we know this, we know this. But at the same time, doesn't your heart beat for what should have happened at that dinner party that night in Bethany at Simon's home? Listen, with, with this profoundly unforgettable moment in history, what do you think should have happened in Simon's home at this dinner party that night? 
Well, I can tell you one thing, the scolding shouldn't have been taking place towards Mary, right? Certainly not. In fact, the exact opposite should have been taking place. I don't know, something like all there present that night at this dinner party should have stood to their feet. They should have run to form a line and one by one come up to Mary and say to Mary, Mary, could I please have some of your oil so that I can also pour it over the head of my Savior too? Can I borrow some oil so that I can express some of my unspeakable greatness to him. Dear church this morning, who do you resemble? Who do I resemble? Do we resemble the critics of Mary? Or do we resemble Mary? Will the Savior say of us as he said of Mary in verse eight of our text this morning, They did what they could. They did many beautiful things for me. Don't you want the Savior to say that of you? How do we respond to this? What's our application to this historical account? Just two brief ones. One is to examine our love and devotion for the Savior. Has Christ's sacrificial love moved you to love him in return? Why did Jesus make this promise in verse nine of our text to all and for the world to hear of and to see? Why did Jesus make this promise? I believe this is why. So that all of us may be affected by her. Listen, where there is a profession of faith in the Savior without affection for the Savior and obedience to the Savior, then that faith should be questioned. But dear church this morning, I'm not not trying to create doubt in the mind of, of your conversion because the Lord wants you and I to be assured of our salvation. Second Peter 1 verse 10, he says, make your calling and election sure, make it sure. And he shows us how in Second Peter 1. So the Savior not only wants us to preach the gospel, but to see and hear Mary's story as well, which would be told in memory of her along with the gospel. Because when we truly consider the gospel, we must consider the transforming effect of the gospel and see if we are similar to Mary in any way. So question again, are, are we like the disciples here who were giving Mary a hard time for extravagantly worshiping her savior king? Or are we like Mary showing an obvious devotion to Jesus as she poured out her earthly treasure in love for him who was her everlasting treasure? 
nothing could compare to her savior at all. Are you this morning concerned about how weak and feeble your love for the savior is at times? That's good, but be comforted by Jesus's word to Peter after failing miserable, miserably in John 20, right? Jesus knowing that he has been denied by Peter, by even Peter even, not even knowing, saying that he didn't even know the savior three times, cursed even. And what did Jesus say to him at each time? Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, Lord, you know I love you. Again, he said it, repeat. The third time, Peter says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I really, really like you. Because that, that, that's, that's what the text says. The first two times we see that Jesus is, is referring to agape love, complete, selfless, only God-centered love that cannot be competed with. And Peter is really honest the third time and says, Lord, you know that I love you. You know that I really, really like you. You know that I'm yours. Hear this this morning, dear church. God accepts less than a perfect love, but not less than a real love. The believer loves the Lord Jesus Christ, Ephesians 6.24, with an incorruptible love because of the grace that has been shown to him or her. And that becomes increasingly obvious in the life of the one who has been made a new creation in Christ. So dear church, we need to examine our love and our devotion to the Savior. He accepts less than a perfect love, but not less than a real love. And number two, express your love and devotion to the Savior. Express it. However immature your faith is, yet still, your love for him cannot be concealed. It must be expressed. Listen, we are talking about our relationship with King Jesus, our creator, sustainer, savior, great high priest, our shepherd, our God. How do we express our love and devotion to the savior? It comes all the way back again, that's correct, to the spiritual disciplines of the Christian life. Doesn't it? It comes all the way back around. How do I express my love and devotion to the Savior? Well, you know, when you have a relationship with someone, you listen to that person. When you have a loving relationship with that person, you listen carefully to them. How do we listen to God? How do we listen to our Savior? By reading his word. By listening to his word. The Lord Jesus prayed the night that he was betrayed in the great high priestly prayer, John 17, Lord, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. We express our love and devotion to the Savior by listening to him. We express our love and devotion to the Savior by talking to 
to him. How do we talk to him? By the great, great privilege that we have to now approach the throne of grace boldly with confidence because the veil of the temple has been torn in tune and we have direct, immediate access to our Savior who bled and died for us. We have immediate access to him through something called prayer. Prayer. Do you talk to him? Do you praise him? Do you thank him? Do you ever sometimes even leave your prayers to something as simple as, in light of who he is and all that he's done for you, Lord, there's a lot going on and you know it all. I love you. I love you. Thank you for what you've done for me. I'm gonna be with you forever in the glories of heaven. And no matter the suffering, no matter the trial, no matter the pain, you're causing it all to work together for good to those who love you, to those who love you, to those who love you. You talk to him. And then, of course, what does this relationship look like? It looks like obedience. Do you obey him? John 13, 35. By this all men will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep, you will hold fast to my commandments, to my word. Dear church, if we've seen anything this morning, may it be that we have learned from Mary's example that the transforming effect of the gospel is devoted, unashamed love for the Savior. And if we have this love for the Savior, if we have been born again to a living hope, if we know the forgiveness of our, all of our transgressions, if we know that his grace is greater than all our sin, then it will blossom in our lives. It will show and become increasingly evident in our lives even as it was in the life of Mary. And it goes far, far beyond a one year's wage to show our love and devotion for the Savior because as he said, you wanna follow after me? You have to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And that is complete and costly devotion to the Savior. But if you know who he is, what that cost you will not compare to knowing him and being with your savior forever in the glories of heaven, praising him and thanking him for what he's done for a wretch, for a worm like you and like me to make us sons and daughters of the most high God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, your, your life-saving love towards us and, and giving yourself up for us, sinful lawbreakers, was a, a fragrant aroma to the Father. And so in response, Lord, may, may the entirety of our lives be a sweet-smelling aroma unto you with grace-motivated obedience and, and love to you and, and love to one another. May that oil flow unashamedly and freely from our redeemed lives unto you with eternal gratefulness. To the glory of your name, Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.
Well, it's our, our privilege this morning and, and our joy now out of, out of love and gratitude to this Savior of ours to do what he has so kindly commanded us to do, and that is to remember him. That is his death in our place, and to remember that he has borne our sins in his body on the tree. Why? So that we would die to sin and live unto righteousness. Why? Because by his wounds, we have been healed. And so we celebrate the Lord's table this morning because it is commanded in 1 Corinthians 11, as Paul says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats and drinks, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. He tells us in his word to take in a worthy manner. What does that mean? That means number one, you have to be in Christ. You have to repent and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in who he is and what he said and what he did in behalf of you and your sin. You must be a new creation in Christ. And number two, for the believer, you must have no hidden or unconfessed sin in your life. If there is anything like that and you partake in this, it's the, the scriptures say there's judgment unto you. This is very serious. So if there is anything like that, please let it pass by. This is no joke. This is the truth of God's precious word and his gift to us. This is a time of celebrating and remembering the Lord Jesus Christ to not make a mockery out of this celebration this morning. And so really to walk in a worthy manner unto him is, do you come with a sense, a complete sense of your unworthiness before him? He graciously tells us to examine ourselves so that we can rightfully, joyfully, truly rejoice in his sacrifice on our behalf. So let's do that now. Let's do that in prayer while Nathan plays for us and then we'll sing together. Please take a moment in prayer and then we'll pray together.